This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The high cost of healthcare is often blamed on the high cost of drugs. But a careful look at our healthcare system reveals that costs charged by drug manufacturers are less than the cost of the intermediaries, known as pharmacy benefit managers, which neither make drugs nor provide insurance. Pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs as they're known, were designed to negotiate drug discounts on behalf of health insurance providers and then take their earnings from a portion of the negotiated discounts. Incredibly, the PBM industry itself today, owing to the complexity and opacity of the healthcare system, now costs the US healthcare system more than either the cost of drugs or the cost of insurance, with PBMs now enjoying more than 400 billion in revenue annually. Worse still, the incentive structures within PBMs can bind doctors to prescribe drugs not based on optimal clinical benefit, but on the price structures of the PBMs. How have organizations built to reduce the cost of drugs, become bigger than the drug companies or the insurance companies themselves? And what can regulators and consumers do to reform the system to better align incentives in a way that encourages lower costs and greater freedoms for doctors to care for their patients? My guests today are Alva 10 CEO, Hannah Mamushka, and her firm's chief medical officer, Dr. Blake Long. As advocates for the use of testing to determine proper, proper medical therapies, known as precision medicine, Hannah and Blake have studied the costs of the distortions created by PBM's incentive structures. They will share with us how pharmacy benefit managers work, why they have grown to nearly half a trillion dollar industry, and what consumers and policymakers can do to encourage reform that can lower costs while encouraging more effective drugs and therapies for healthcare consumers. When I return, I'll be joined by Alva Tenz, Hannah Mamushka, and Dr. Blake Long. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. Uh, I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm pleased to now be joined by Alva Tenz, Chief Executive Officer, Hannah Mamushka, and Alva Tenz, Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Blake Long. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Hannah, and welcome to Hubwonk, Blake. Thank you so much, Joe. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Pleasure to be here. Okay, we're going to be talking about um, uh, pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs as they're known, uh, and their effect on the cost of drugs and uh, the availability of particular drugs in our uh, healthcare system. Uh, our listeners remember you, Hannah, I'm sure, as an expert in uh, precision medicine, uh, an advocate for precision medicine. Uh, so I'd like to have Blake introduce himself and share some about of his background and how he came to precision medicine and Alva 10 and where he comes at this issue of PBMs. Uh, well, thank you, Joe. Um, so my background is I initially studied health economics and then completed a medical training and practice as a pediatric cardiologist for about 20 years. And over that time, I became increasingly frustrated with the complexity of the healthcare system and its effect on patients and physicians. And so decided to make a career pivot and work on healthcare system change through innovation and investing. And I joined the Alvaten team and Hannah. Uh, they have been working on that about uh, two and a half years ago. So your voice is uh, coming from someone from the inside who sees that uh, you have a uh patients who need care, you have doctors who want to help them, but a system that somehow uh, uh, interferes with that, with that process. 
Um, it, indeed, I did. I experienced it on a, on a regular basis. Um, there are a lot of distortions, uh, particularly with uh, choices for therapies or diagnostics, whether it be testing or imaging. A lot of times those things were dictated uh, to me and not in the best interest of uh, patient care or as I saw fit. Okay, so now Hannah, I want to dig into our topic of uh, pharmacy benefit managers by first defining what they do. I mean, who who created these things, and what were they supposed to do, or what are they supposed to do for our healthcare system? So PBMs have been around for a while. They've actually been around since the 1960s. Um, they started to kind of creep into healthcare system in the 80s and 90s when the first ones were, were actually spun out of payers. The idea is that there needs to be some kind of an intermediary that works between the insurance company and the pharmaceutical company, the drug manufacturer who's manufacturing the drug. So even though the name pharmacy benefit manager makes you think of pharmaceutical, a pharmacy benefit manager is much more closely related related to the insurance company than it is to the pharmaceutical company. Um, the idea with the PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, is for them to negotiate best drug prices and then pass that along to payers. Um, in theory, enabling a better competition in the market, better pricing, and theoretically better value. So, um, Blake, and you study this, you have the background in the economics. How do PBMs make their money in the system? Um, they're, it's, they're in the middle of a multi-sided market, and so they have essentially four different ways they make money. Um, the first is fees that they receive for, from, predominantly from the health plan for managing transaction costs and uh, medication management for patients. Uh, the second is what's called spread pricing where they collect a, a price from the payer and then actually charge a different price to the pharmacy and keep the difference. The third is what's called call, callbacks. And these are contractual relationships with the pharmacists um, that if they meet certain metrics, don't meet certain metrics, they can reclaim some fees. And the last one is sort of the big one, which is rebates in that um, the pharmaceutical company uh, gives a discount to the PBM uh, for guaranteed volume. Uh, and so they set a high price and if that volume is met, they'll give a discount. Uh, what's key is that all these things are done after the point of sale. Um, so those are the four real avenues of um, uh, PBMs making money. So in theory, uh, they're paid out of the discounts they uh, fight for on behalf of insurance companies, which ultimately uh, we're the consumers who pay those insurance rates clawbacks how do these work do consumers when they when we get these discounts presumably we get cheaper drugs um do these clawbacks ultimately redound to the benefit of, of uh, someone out there buying a, a drug um the clawbacks have less effect on sort of the consumer point of sale uh, they're really affecting the margins of the pharmacist um, and that is going to be a, a, a less of a challenge the more important one is the is the rebate uh, uh, issue. And uh, that's the big one. And just some general sense about uh, the scale of this, um, the contracts between the PBM and the pharmaceutical manufacturers, which is where the rebate is the effect, um, is very opaque. But some published studies have shown uh, how significant they are. For example, in 2016, 13 major pharmaceutical companies um, had gross revenues of approximately 300 billion, 
and they paid $100 billion in rebates back to the system uh, for a net revenue of $200 billion. So in other words, the pharmaceutical manufacturers paid 30% of their gross revenues back to the system in uh, rebates, uh, or about 50% of their net revenue, in other words, the money they keep. Um, and that's been increasing significantly uh, over the last several years. That, that seems like a lot of money. We're talking about big bucks, uh, even uh, in, in relation to the size of our healthcare system. How large is the PBM industry itself, meaning not the drug um, companies' uh, money to them? So I'm doing the math. If they're paying $100 billion, we're saying $100 billion goes to the PBM, or that, that money goes uh, some to the PBM and some to the, back to the insurance company. Um, they, yes, some goes to the PBM and some goes back to the insurance company. Um, so just a, you know, a couple of other things on that issue. Um, the top five PBMs in 2021, their gross revenues were $422 billion, which is 9% higher than in 2020. So there's been growth and it's 56% higher than in 2015. So that, that revenue growth for PBMs has been dramatic. Uh, they have profit margins about four to 5%. So that's a lot of profit, it's, it goes into the PBMs. And just to compare the top five pharmaceutical companies had gross revenues in 2019 of half of that or 240 billion. And the top five insurers had 22 billion in gross revenue. So just to give you a sense of, of um, relation and scale. So it's, if I get those numbers right, the, the quote unquote middleman, if I'm entitled to call PBM's middlemen, uh, are much larger than the people that are standing in the middle, which are the drug companies and the insurance companies. They're, they're uh, a relative giant compared to the people that they're theoretically uh, intermediaries for. That's, that's correct, yes. What percentage of, of drugs pass through these PBMs? Um, uh, and uh, frankly, with that much money, um, I believe in markets. I hope uh, we all believe in markets and the power of markets. Shouldn't that amount of money uh, encourage competition? And we all know uh, basic economics in the long run, profits go to zero. What's going on here? Uh, uh, you know, is, is, uh, do they compete with each other? Um, there are three large PBMs. Uh, and they own 90% of the market share. Uh, so they're competing against each other, but they have you know, quite a bit of market. That's a significant concentration. Um, and they, you, we know them as you know, CVS, Caremark, Cigna, Express Scripts, and United Health Group, OptumRx. Um, of note, a lot of those are recent horizontal consolidation or, uh, with insurers. Um, and then finally, there are roughly about 70 PBMs, including those top three. And there's been several, a few recent entrants. Uh, so there's a lot of smaller ones that are competing against each other and against those big three. So presumably uh, this is an industry that's perhaps ripe for um, disruption. Uh, we will talk a little bit uh, later in our conversation whether any of that's actually happening and how that would happen. Um, but so far, I mean, at a high level, despite the fact that they seem to be uh, um, uh, collecting nearly half a trillion dollars in revenue, uh, they do seem to be somewhat useful. They advocate for cheaper drugs and, and in theory, more competition. If uh, a drug is too expensive, presumably they will choose a, a less expensive drug. But let's, let's talk about how a, a, um, 
PBMs, how they were originally designed to negotiate on our behalf, and I presume encourage competition of cheaper drugs. Where have uh, distortions begin to, uh, where have they started to appear? Um, let me just throw out an idea here. I mean, you've, you've sort of implied that um, if PBMs are driven by their own profits, $422 billion is a lot of profit, and those the profits you said are generated primarily by the discounts uh, they negotiate on our behalf with the drug companies. Um, and the more expensive a drug is, the bigger the potential for a discount. Um, there seems to be a clear initiative to, uh, or an incentive to include more expensive drugs on a formulary instead of cheaper generic drugs, right? If, it, if a drug costs almost nothing, the discount is almost nothing. So uh, to me, you know, as, as a layman, this seems like an incentive for really expensive drugs. Yeah, and that's exactly how we've ended up with the healthcare system that we have. You know, if you look at what happens to new entrants to drugs that get approved um, in the indications where there are already drugs in other markets, you would expect uh, a new entrant to come in at a low price, right? To try to induce customers to try a new drug, um, to try and induce physicians, try to induce the PBMs and the payers. It's actually the opposite in our system now. Um, if a new drug comes into the market and isn't priced high enough to confer those discounts, that drug won't be placed on the, on the formulary. The only way that you can get access to formulary tiering, and, and just to clarify, you want to be as high on the formulary tiering as possible because that's the order in which physicians are allowed to order and, and try drugs on their patients. You want to be as high up on that formulary tiering as possible. It's actually pricing your drug higher that gets you there. It's not pricing your drug lower that gets you there because that's exactly what you said, Joe. That's how you get that discount and that's how that's how they make their money. So this would seem to be exactly counter to the notion of markets that, you know, high price would invite lower cost competitors to enter the market. So the PBM looks at this lower cost alternative. I got drug A that's expensive and drug B that's cheaper. My mandate is to um, find cheaper drugs. And yet I may overlook the cheaper drug because there's less discount for me to negotiate. Ergo, I choose the more expensive drug. Right, yeah, that's, that, that, that's referred to as the rebate trap uh, or the rebate wall. And uh, so again, that established expensive uh, incumbent you know, gives a big discount. And so the new entrant even might be a better drug for a patient or less expensive, but the savings that the health plan would realize from using that less expensive drug gets overwhelmed by the loss of the rebate for the more expensive one. So even though they may want to do that, they would lose money in the, in the aggregate because they would lose this massive rebate on the more expensive one. Yes, I can imagine all the drugs some in the future go to uh, generic. They're all, you know, a dollar. I don't know how one would earn $422 billion with uh, a formulary full of very inexpensive uh, generics. So we can see a problem right there. Uh, right. Something against against the consumer. Um, so I want to uh, map our, our conversation directly onto your work uh, with Alva 10, uh, advocating for precision medicine. Uh, for our listeners who haven't heard our earlier uh, episodes together, precision medicine, if you'll let me sort of generalize, is, is the idea that 
uh, different drugs and therapies work differently for different people. And with better testing, we could uh, bring to bear um, more effective drugs right away. We don't have to give everybody drug one, see what works, and then give the, those who didn't it didn't work for drug two, on and on. on. We test everybody and give everybody the right drug the first time. Again, I'm I'm generalizing, but um, that's how I see precision medicine. How how might the dynamics of PBMs militate against uh, the idea of precision medicine? How how would it work against what you're trying to do? Yeah, you know, in some ways, I think that the concept of having a PBM um, to help a physician figure out which drug to choose, you know, predated this concept of precision medicine, because when you had multiple drugs and there was no biologic way to tell which patient was going to respond to which drug, it made sense to make that decision from an economic perspective, since you couldn't make it from a clinical perspective. Um, Now we know that we have the tools to figure out which patients are going to respond to which drugs. So you could ask why we would want to use the economics instead of the clinical. So, you know, if you take, if you take an example like rheumatoid arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disease where you have multiple classes of drugs that work through different mechanisms of action. And then within each class of drugs, you have multiple drugs. So you have, if you're a a rheumatologist treating patients with rheumatoid arthritis, you have a whole variety of drugs to choose from. And right now, most of that choice is dictated based on the formulary tiering of your pharmacy benefit manager. However, now there are diagnostic tools on the market that would allow you to figure out if your patients should go on, say, a TNF inhibitor, which is the predominant class of drugs that's used in rheumatoid arthritis, which works in about 36% of patients who are prescribed to them, or if your patient should go on a JAK inhibitor or an interleukin drug. But the problem is is that the rebates for the TNF inhibitors in rheumatoid arthritis are so substantial that when payers take a look at what it would take to implement using a diagnostic in rheumatoid arthritis and shifting some of those patients from TNF inhibitors to JAK inhibitors or to other classes of drugs, from an economic perspective, they realize they're going to lose their rebates because they are going to dip down below the threshold of volume under which they get those rebates and the drug is going to become much more expensive. And so even though they now know that they have a tool where they could place patients on a drug that was they were most likely to respond to, where they, their symptoms would decrease, where they'd be less likely to be in the hospital, where they'd be more likely to be functional and feel better and be productive at work, from an economic perspective, they can't make it work. And we've talked to PBMs about this. We've actually also talked to some employers about it. And some of the employers have essentially admitted that their economic structure of their health plan is so dependent on the rebates that they can't make the decision to add in a diagnostic, knowing that it would improve the outcomes for their employees because the rebates are so substantial from the PBMs. And that's a problem. Because in in 2022, we have the technical capability to do this, but now we've created this economic problem. So we're putting the economics ahead of the clinical improvements for patients. So I find this hard to believe. I'm going to kick it back to Blake because he's the doctor in the room. And I'm going to say, in this model, if I've got it straight from what Hannah's just told us, we could offer a patient a diagnostic test that would tell them which is the right drug to take first. And by so doing, we may actually discover that it's a lower price drug or a drug that offers a lower rebate. 
Ergo, I'm not going to do the test and I'm going to give the maximum rebate drug to all my patients, knowing that I could avoid the time and the, you know, I'll call it suffering uh, that giving the sort of ineffective drug first will, will incur on my patients. How, how does that ring in a doctor's ear? Um, back to my intro, not well. <laughs> exactly. It's, um, so again, it's if you sort of think about it, I'll answer it sort of academically and then sort of a little bit more to the patient level. As Hannah described, we have this um, decision-making based on the economics for what is chosen. And that is decided by a volume thing in retrospect. And so the idea is that you look back and say, this is how much drug I need to, we need to use the volume. And then I use all those tools of tiering, step therapy, which is really hard for patients. I have to try a drug, make it fail before I go to the next one. Very difficult for patients. Um, in prior authorization, you can't get the drug approved until you do all these steps. They use all these tools to make sure they hit those volume targets. Um, whereas we're thinking about using a diagnostic tool, and if you look at it from the PBM perspective as a potential advantage, you could say, I have a certain number of patients and I know who is going to be on the drug and who will respond, and I can guarantee the volume prospectively, and then you negotiate a rebate on that rather than in retrospect, as which is how it's doing. What that's doing for con consumers or patients is most patients now in the marketplace are on high deductible health plans. So they are exposed to a large co-insurance. So the higher the price of the service or drug, the more they have to pay. And in the specialty pharmacy area and uh, in Medicare uh, Part D, for example, in cancer, um, average co-pays now for a 12-month prescription are ten dollars to $15,000. And that results in a non-initiation rate of 30%. Um, so it, it has a significant out-of-pocket cost to the consumer getting exposed to these rebate-driven um, co-insurance problems and lack of utilization. So I can't pick the right drug. The patient doesn't has to go through drugs that don't work to get there, and then they're exposed to the significant cost. It's a real problem in the clinic. So the PBM is both making that drug that they need more expensive. It's making it less likely they'll be prescribed the better drug, regardless of cost, because it's lower on the formulary. And when they ultimately do have to pay, uh, they do I have it right? They don't enjoy the, the discount or the rebate. They, they have to pay retail. Um, flesh that out for our listeners a little more. Um, Again, uh, does do I uh, the cancer patient? You, you, there's a remarkable ten fifteen thousand uh, cost per year. Of course, as you mentioned, that means thirty percent of people with cancer don't take their drugs. Um, how, how does that work? How does it? Um, how am I uh, not uh, benefited by the the discount that the PBM uh, negotiated on my behalf? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and that's one of the complexities. Is the the co-insurance is at the price at the point of sale. So you get exposed to the full price and then the discount happens after the sale. So all that money gets flowing around after I've already paid the price at the counter, so to speak, or the point of sale. And so that rebate then goes back into the PBM and doesn't necessarily come back to me. I don't see that discount at the point of sale. So the co-insurance gets exposed to the higher price. 
That's why it's so problematic for the patient. Now, uh, one of the reasons we're addressing this question now, as you say, the PBM has been around for a while and uh, they've been getting worse, but uh, it's, it's a, it seems like a, a, a substantial problem. Um, I, I've read that um, there's some attention of, on this issue, the PBMs, uh, by the Federal Trade Commission. These are the people who are supposed to protect us from unfair trade practices, such as um, monopolistic behaviors. I guess this would be called uh, monopsonistic. We've got a few buyers of, of big buyers of, of drugs. Um, is anything being discussed at the high level? Well, you guys, I'm sure, are uh, uh, up on this. What's going on with the Federal Trade Commission? Are they um, uh, looking at this, and uh, do they see it as a problem that, that we do? Um, so, yes, the Federal Trade Commission just recently dealt with this issue, and the focus primarily was on the pharmacy clawback issue as being anti-competitive. Um, but they voted in a two to two to not actually have the FTC explore that issue. But the, the study that was planned was more encompassing to look at the rebate side of the market, which is between the PBM and the pharmaceutical and other anti-competitive practices, including spread pricing and some of the other things. Um, and the thought was, is that is not, the objections to pursuing the study were that it was not clear how it was going to affect consumer welfare, which is um, a, a little bit interesting given the discussion we've had uh, just previously. Yeah, I, I did read um, something about um, the head of the FTC, uh, a, a woman named Lena Khan, recently appointed by the Biden administration. She seems pretty tough on anything that looks like monopoly, but here I think they've sort of um, lost the 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 main point of our conversation i think the as you say we're more concerned about what pbms do to little pharmacies uh in 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 uh, uh pref preferencing or privileging the cvs's of the world in uh, at the expense of the small pharmacist i think the bigger question as you point out it seems like they overlooked the huge distortionary uh effects uh, as in a half a trillion dollars siphoned off the system uh that uh, interfere both with the price of drugs the availability of proper drugs, the uh, prevalence of tests, um, all these distortions. Why do you think they've overlooked this uh, um, half a trillion dollar uh, elephant in the room? Hannah? Hannah, you want to tackle that one? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I find it fascinating because there's so mm. much of a discussion right now, uh, as there is this time every election cycle around drug pricing. And around Medicare's uh, ability to influence drug pricing, about the government's ability to influence drug pricing, and about, you know, should we be importing drugs from other countries, and how do we not stifle innovation? And that's that's all fine, um, and that's an interesting conversation to have every two years. But it it stymies me, and I don't know if it's because the industry is so opaque, it's so difficult to figure out. A lot of these contracts are secret. Um, you know, if you talk to payers, a lot of them don't even know what are in at, at very senior levels. Um, they'll describe that these contracts are so secret that they haven't seen them. They're not allowed to discuss the rebates. They're not allowed to share them. None of this is publicly available. It's it's essentially impossible to figure out how valuable they actually are. Other than the fact that, you know, these are publicly traded companies and, and you figure out at the end of the year what they've been up to. Um, but it's it's a real question as to why there's so much focus on the pharma industry, um, who is 
doing research and actually developing drugs, but makes less profit off of them than the PBMs do. Yes, indeed. The um, you know we've had um, shows on Hubwonk talking about the fact that uh, drug prices, though the, the popular narrative is that they're going up, they seem to have uh, stayed with inflation or or not kept up with inflation. Um, so uh, the boogeyman on the political level is definitely the drug companies, but uh, PBMs seem to. Uh, miss any kind of scrutiny, even though, as you say, they're not even making the drugs. They're not, they're not uh, healing us. They're doing essentially nothing but uh, acting as intermediaries. All right, so the FTC took a pass on this. I, I do, though, think that uh, I've, I've read uh, somewhat on this that uh, senators from both sides of the aisle, um, Republicans and Democrats, have both said, look, let's, let's, let's keep this on the, on the front burner. Let's, let's take another look at this. I think there's more to the eye. Um, uh, more to the issue than the eye can see right now. Uh, so let's hope that this remains top of mind. But if the federal government can't be uh, relied upon uh, to, in a sense, go out there and figure out what's going on with this system, what um, what can consumers, uh, our listeners, business owners, uh, interested policymakers, what can those people who really want to tackle this issue, uh, what can they do? You know, I think, I think we've seen changes um, in terms of employers uh, starting to realize, especially smaller employers and employers that self-insure, starting to think about the consequences of PBMs and of the rebates of PBMs and how that impacts both their healthcare costs, their employees' ability to work. We're seeing more and more market entrance of smaller, more innovative PBMs that have a different business model, where their business model is that they, you know, they contract with your employer on a, you know, a per employee or a per member basis. So they are not incentivized by the rebates. They're incentivized to grow their business. Um, some of them have other more interesting value-based arrangements around performance um, in terms of how you, your employees, your patients are doing. So I think that there is a, a starting to be some market pushback. But as Blake said, you know, the dominant mechanism for PBM business relationships right now is the rebates. And most companies, most employers are using a PBM that is using the rebates as an incentive to drive business. And it, it, it greatly affects how employers make decisions about their employees' health care. Um, and I think it's really important for employees to start to think about that and to start asking questions, particularly, you know, as benefit selection season rolls around, you know, think about what that means for your benefits program, for what your employer is offering you, because, you know, it might have some consequences that um, may be unintended. So there are um, uh, PBMs. We don't want to paint everybody with the same brush. There are PBMs who do have uh, incentive structures aligned with the benefits of consumers and and businesses. Uh, we just got to go out there and find them. Uh, is it the case that um, I think mean, we're we're blaming these uh, kickbacks, if you will, um, these discounts that are negotiated as sort of the um, the, the mechanism by which uh, PBMs. I think exploit the system or distort the system. Is, is are there PBMs that have no um, do not use that at all? Uh, how do they, in a sense, um, uh, negotiate for better prices? And what metric do they use instead? 
Yeah, I mean, there are ones like Costco Health, like Empire RX Health, RX Sense, Welldyne, just to name a few, that are on, on some sort of a fee-based model um, where you know they're really trying to grow their business, their own business based on aggregated volume um, and not participate in the in the rebates because I think that there, there's a growing trend in that direction um, of understanding that at some point, uh, we'll have to change how we pay for drugs. So, Blake, I'll, I'll say to you again, with the economics background, as companies and insurance firms, you know, say, uh, wake up and slowly start to shift toward uh, this newer model, this um, fixed fee or fee for um, per unit or something like that. Um, this must then, if we take some of these. Uh, uh, half a trillion dollars of intermediary fees out, that should reduce premiums and save uh, consumers money in the long run, shouldn't it? It should, it should, because that's money that uh, really in sort of in the middle and it's not actually moving back to creating value. And um, I, I think one of the key things that Hannah said for this precision medicine is we can move to more fee-based, but also as the pharmacy benefit with which has historically been markedly separated from the medical benefit, is those things start to blend together and the pharmacy actually affects your medical outcomes and your costs, and therefore your premiums, as well as the point of sale costs that we talked about for paying for the drug, um, that um, as you start blending those together, you, and then we move to value-based care, Moving to risk-based contracts would be another interesting way to say how you manage your pharmacy benefits. So there are a lot of ways to use more clinical tools and to use more risk-based contracting um, and move away from the rebate model and just a, a fee on a transaction um, and looking more for outcomes. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity to move in directions that can be really beneficial for patients and actually reduce total cost of care on top of reducing specialty pharmacy care. Yes, it seems like it's a potential for win-win-win. As you say, you never want to be making decisions with people's health based purely on economic reasons. You want to use clinical reasons. You want people to get better. Um, and this seems to be just gratuitously distortionary. Um, uh, and it, one hopes uh, fixable without uh, causing harm to anyone. Um, well, this is a very complex issue. I, I hope, uh, I'm gonna say, let's watch this space uh, because I think this should come up. Um, I'll, have our, I'll invite our listeners to call their congressman or senator and say, you know, wh what are you doing about this? Um, uh, and let's see if this can't uh, come back into the forefront of, uh, of our attention. So thank you very much, both of you, for joining me on Hubwonk. I hope if it does come back onto the uh, 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 public's eye, you'll come back and join me and explain what's going on and for moving forward in the right direction. For sure. Will do. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you want to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to reach out to me 
at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.